From Creative Force, I'm Daniel Jester, and this is the e-commerce content creation podcast. Joining me for this episode is Juliana Vale, longtime creative operations veteran with an emphasis on fashion tech, most recently director of service development and innovation at Farfetch. This is a bit of a different episode than normal. We have a handful of industry news bits to cover, so we'll be talking about a variety of topics from the Levi's AI model announcement to some interesting job postings for Amazon Imaging. Before we get into the episode, I just want to mention links to the various articles and press releases that we talk about during the episode. We'll put those in the show notes, just in case you want to be able to reference those. Now let's jump into this episode with Juliana Vale. This is the e-commerce content creation podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Jester. Joining me for this episode, Juliana Vale. Hi, Juliana. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Daniel. Good to talk to you today. So I didn't give your title or company because I wanted to be a little bit more personal and framing who you are. I think a lot of our audience probably knows who you are, but you and I met, you interviewed me at Farfetch. I count that as one of the best interviews of my career because it was just a casual conversation about the industry for like an hour. I felt like it didn't feel like an interview to me. But now you're kind of just out there consulting on creative operations. And in particular, it's a really exciting time in the world of innovation. Today's episode is sort of topicless. We have a bullet point of a couple of industry news things. I've been really excited to do like a news segment on this podcast. And unfortunately, there's not a lot of breaking news in <laughs> e-commerce creative <laughs> production, it turns out. But things have been moving quickly. There's some new things to talk about. And so we're just going to chat. We're going to chat about a handful of these things. Yeah. And I'm really excited to be here. And who knew when, you know, when we had that conversation, however many years ago that, you know, you turn into this major media mogul in creative operations. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm waiting for my riches that go along with that. <laughs> it's going to be mogul. Richard Murdoch and then you. <laughs> yeah, right. So hope, God, it can't come quick enough. I have four yeah. children and they're all getting very big. <laughs> So there's a couple of things that came across my LinkedIn feed that I thought would be interesting for us to chat about. The first thing that we want to talk about is actually quite an old story. It's from 2014, which is an unfathomable length of time ago <laughs> since the pandemic, six years pre-pandemic, which is weird to even think that that existed. It's an article from Fast Company, and the title of the article is 75% of Ikea's catalog is computer-generated imagery. And this is something that I have been aware of this for a few years. I think, Juliana, you have. We're not really sure who in the industry at large is really aware that IKEA has been using 3D models to create product imagery for its website for a very long time. Yeah, it actually started, I read, it was 2006 was the first time that they actually used 3D renders within their catalog. And they actually did it as a test. So they put these 3D renders in their catalog just to see if anybody would notice. And surprise, nobody actually noticed that these were 3D renders in their catalog. So, And then since then, they've just been growing and growing and growing in this space and completely transformed the way that their photo shoots, their studios actually work. So where previously they had massive photo shoots and coordinated massive photo shoots, a lot of those resources now are being geared more towards the 3D rendering, 3D modeling, simulation of a lot of the textiles. And so, yeah, as you saw there, and I'm sure this is now an outdated stat where it's not 75% anymore. I'm sure it's now much, much larger of their catalog is actually digitally rendered. Yeah, I can't imagine that they stopped at 75%. Right. But I mean, it makes perfect sense, right? Like from just purely a business standpoint, a furniture company 
especially if a furniture company that sort of is designed and built around most things being flat pack, the space involved in being able to store, prep, shoot that product, and then all of the normal process things that come after that is just, it's an astronomical amount of just physical space, let alone resources, you know, people and equipment and all of that stuff. Yeah. And there was an art director that I used to work with who said, you know, the difference between home shoots and fashion shoots, home shoots are like moving. Fashion shoots are like getting dressed in the morning. And so, you know, you just think about the amount of effort between those two things. Yeah. And it it just makes sense that you would yeah. go in that direction. I've, yeah. I've told this story on the podcast before, but I think it might have gotten cut out. But I interviewed with a furniture company who was, mm. who, and this was around 20, this is probably around that same time, 2015, maybe. And they had just opened a new studio and they had already outgrown it. They had just opened a brand new studio. We're talking less than a year before the day that I, that I interviewed there. And they already had, I think, eight or 10 Connex trailer containers packed full of product that was getting damaged because they had no place to put right. it and they were trying to store it and it was falling all over itself. And they just didn't have the room. And like you mentioned, I mean, in some cases, it's not a matter of just moving. Every time you have to create a new shot, it's literally moving everything out of that scene, especially yeah. for environmental scenes. In some cases, you're having to rebuild the house that you're, <laughs> you know, if you're working on a set with like reversible flats so that you can make the room look slightly different here and there, you're rebuilding and reconfiguring the studio between images. Yeah. yeah. And then what happens to it when you're done? Right. It's probably going in a landfill. Yeah. So I think from the sustainability angle, it's also really interesting to to discuss. I know Amazon was at their big home goods studio here just outside of Los Angeles was donating uh, most of that furniture that they were shooting there to Habitat for Humanity. So I guess they're like... If there's an unintended consequence to this, it's does the source of free furniture dry up for sure. charities uh, if we move <laughs> yeah. towards rendering, which is, you know, that's a, that's an easier problem to solve than trying to, you know, continue in some of these other ways. Because, like, a big theme for some of the things we're going to touch on today, Juliana, for me, is thinking about this. And I've been thinking more and more about creative production through the lens of sustainability. Mm. And, like, there's plenty of this new technology stuff that makes me as a photographer and somebody who really loves photography a little bit nervous. And I think that that's a totally natural feeling. But I remind myself that, like, we can't keep shipping stuff around the world and we can't keep dedicating so much space and so much resources and energy to producing images the way that we've been doing it because our desire for both content and physical goods is insatiable and it's only going to get more. And from purely a sustainability standpoint, I think that this has to be something that we move towards as an industry. And it turns out it's going to save your business a ton of money and enable remote work in a lot of ways that weren't feasible for before for creative teams. So I'm making kind of a strong sales pitch for working in 3D models already, but I really believe it's a net benefit. It's just going to be uncomfortable to let go of the camera for a lot of us people who are doing that work for a very long time and have built careers doing it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in a couple of things in that space, I think, one, a lot of brands who are working in this, and I think we're maybe shifting the conversation a little bit more towards fashion here, are actually starting to embrace digital pattern creation. They call it DPC, digital product creation. And they are sort of leaning into it also as a more sustainable means to do their sampling process and their product creation process. And so that's already kind of existing and they're looking at it at that angle. But also then just to kind of step back and look back, you know, 20, 25 years ago when, you know, photography went through another major shift and that was going from film into digital. And I mean, I feel like it almost happened overnight. I don't know what your experience was, but Mm. when 
one day I was in, you know, in, in college and I was in a dark room. And then the next day I was, you know, basically a glorified digital tech on a, <laughs> on a commercial photo studio. So it happened very rapidly. So I think this change, it's a similar time when things could very rapidly change. And I think if you don't embrace it now and you don't kind of embrace these technologies now, the, the industry is going to overtake you. Again, Ikea being one of the earliest adopters that was open about this. At some point, they opened up about this, that article that will be in the show notes for anybody who's interested in looking at it. It's from 2014. It says within the first paragraph that they've been doing it since 2006. There are, I would bet my paycheck, there are other especially jewelry companies, that furniture is not the only place where this has been somewhat of a standard practice for some time. Not exactly a standard practice. That's the wrong way of putting it. But a practice that Mm -hmm. was more widespread than people thought in home goods or in furniture. But jewelry is another prime example of this. I know I can't disclose who this company is, but I'm aware of at least one company that's been rendering their jewelry for a very long time. Yeah. And a big part of that reason is, as somebody who has shot a lot of jewelry, Even the most expensive piece of jewelry that you can find in the world, the minute you get it under a macro lens, you can see every little blemish. You're talking about so much time and effort to make that jewelry look good in camera before insane amounts of retouching to get it to the point where it somewhat reflects the actual product. Because when you have that ring on your finger, you don't see those tool marks, you don't see those die marks, you don't see any of that stuff, but the camera does see it. And so you're actually, in some cases, this is a great segue into another element of this conversation I want to have with you, Juliana. In some cases, you are actually showing an image. When you photograph jewelry, you're showing an image that isn't exactly representative of the way that you perceive that product in reality. And the rendering is probably closer to how you perceive it. Yeah, yeah. And as somebody who has spent hours and hours and hours retouching jewelry in the past, I can appreciate this topic. Yeah. And I mean, I think this is probably getting a little bit more like meta and philosophical, but, you know, there's a difference in seeing like a, a still image of something and actually experiencing it in real life. And so that render then kind of reflects that sort of idealized sort of version that you're seeing in front of you. And so mm. it's not this sort of stopped reality where you can see every single detail, which you could extend into, you know, any kind of form of photography. It is something that you can actually interact with, which I think is also another sort of benefit of this type of asset as well, because it more reflects kind of how you might interact with something in real life. The whole point of bringing this up and talking about it is that like the next bit that we're going to talk about is a very clear indicator. And the indicators have been getting more and more clear that our industry is moving towards working with 3D models. I think an interesting question, and maybe this is putting the cart ahead of the horse a little bit, Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting to think about how we get to the sort of optimal way of working with 3D models, which in my mind is working in 3D design files and then moving those models into something that resembles a creative production process, but mostly virtually. But in the near term, there's going to be a tons of companies that need to take advantage of a 3D scanning device to convert their physical products today into models that they can use for various other user experiences. So the thing that we're going to touch on really quickly, and it's not really an article or anything, but I shared this with you, Juliana, is there was a post that came across my LinkedIn feed from a senior creative production manager at Amazon who, looking through their work history, appears to have come from the product imaging side of Amazon. So we're not talking about some secret thing that they're working on that's related to film production or anything else. This appears to be somebody who is working on the visual assets that customers who are buying on Amazon are interacting with. And they posted four roles, 3D creative production manager, 3D art director, 
3D environmental and product visualization artist, and 3D senior artist with skills specifically in Marvelous Designer. Uh, What are your thoughts on this, Juliana? Yeah, I mean, I think this is, again, just reflective of kind of the shifting trends within the industry. And I think if you probably look at the roles that are within a company like an IKEA, you probably will see very similar roles posted for a company like that. And so it's probably, again, just the shifting tides of how Amazon is likely embracing this type of technology. I'd be interested to understand in what capacity. Mm. Um, So are they focused on home goods? Is this somebody that's going to be doing marketing assets? Are they looking into hand modeling garments? So, Mm. I mean, as you said, we're still at a very kind of nascent stage as it applies to internet. So some companies are actually scanning items to be used in virtual try-on usage. So very commonly, let's say shoes, is fairly ubiquitous out there. But I do think there is this gap of going from a physical clothing garment to a 3D model. And that all, at this moment, I don't know anybody that's actually unlocked the ability to kind of rapidly create those models out of clothing. So so it could be that these roles are hand modeling and helping to hand model some garments for some virtual try-on features. So hard to say. But I mean, if we go back to looking at the transition of what IKEA did, a lot of the roles, a lot of the photographers that they had working transformed into 3D artists or lighting specialists or environmental, you know, lighting specialists. And so, you know, I think it's probably then reflective of how maybe the shifting tides of the different roles within Amazon. Yeah. So, you know, this is an interesting thing to to unpack. And AI, I think, becomes a little bit of the conversation because like mm-hmm. I've said before, I think AI in creative production for e-commerce is going to play much more of like a plug-in type role where it's a yeah. it's a layer on top of somebody who's doing the thing, you know, like, and the example that I'm thinking about here is like, you bring up a great point, which is making 3D models of apparel. How, what do you even do? Do you put it on a, a mannequin or do you put it on a model and then you need a scanner that can support that? Do you hand create the models? You know, this is where for like something as simple as a t-shirt I think it stands to reason and probably exists out there today, the ability to design the t-shirt that you want to design and then use some kind of an AI tool to take that design and apply it to a 3D model that then can be interacted with. And in my head, what I'm picturing is just like a flat shot, like, you know, that there's some AI algorithm in some tool that has a library of all the flat shot that Amazon's have ever shot and can rebuild that natural flow of the fabric rebuild the shadows, rebuild the form, the way that specifically the way that Amazon shoots off figure apparel. Mm -hmm. That seems like a slam dunk to me. That probably can be done today. The one role that's really interesting here, Juliana, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. I don't know if you'd have any information that I, I don't have here, but the 3d environmental and product visualization artist is a really interesting Mm -hmm. role out of those ones. The other ones are more cut and dry as to what they do, but this person is, Visual a visualization artist for for not only environments but products as well. What do you make of that title, and what type of work do you think might fall under that role? Yeah, I mean, I mean, again, it's it's hard without a lot of context to really know what they're looking for. If it's environmental specifically, you have to think that these products are being put in some sort of environment. I mean, I guess it goes without saying. So, you know, they would have to be someone who knows, I assume, about 
lighting, the interaction of lighting on products. So it could also be that this role is meant to put products into some sort of augmented reality experience. So Mm. you could see, let's say, you virtualize a bag and then you're able to actually view it in an environment and you're actually able to view it, let's say, you know, sitting on your desk or right. in different different environments. What does it look like at night? What does it look like, at, you know, on a picnic? So it could be that it, they're looking for somebody that can do that. So we should talk about Levi's AI model announcement because this has been making its way around LinkedIn quite a bit. Obviously, this impacts our industry directly, but this news was big enough that Petapixel picked it up, AdAge picked it up. And so now there are a lot of people, the way that I put it before we started recording this, is that like, you know, the photography industry, we talk on this podcast to an extraordinarily small sliver of the photography industry. If you think about the global photography industry that includes portraits, weddings, advertising, dental photography, like all of anybody who would read Petapixels, anybody who is a hobbyist or professional that uses a camera. And it's really like Petapixel in particular is really geared more towards the general photographer and tends to not cover issues of e-commerce creative production with as much nuance as those of us who are super nerdy and dorky about it would cover. I was pretty surprised that Petapixel, their story was pretty well balanced and well fleshed out. Ad Age, on the other hand, what they were technically covering was the backlash to this announcement. So they had already kind of a baked in little bit of, I think, a clickbait kind of thing. I'm curious to know, Juliana, what were your initial reactions to this announcement and what are your reactions to the sort of popular response to this? When I saw the announcement, I was like, okay, here it is. Like, this is the first of this type of, of photography. And wait, should we sort of announce what they've Yeah, actually, done? I don't think I actually They're, said what they're saying. Yeah, <laughs> we, actually we should. What it was. Yeah, so what Levi's is doing is actually leveraging a company that creates digital models completely virtualized digital models, I should say, and using it as a way to increase the diversity in sizes and races and ages on their site. And so my first reaction to it, as I said, was kind of, okay, this is this is inevitable. This yeah. is the inevitable conclusion. It makes sense that a company like Levi's that can control their whole end-to-end supply chain a brand. Um, would do that. Yeah. yeah, would do this. My skepticism towards this was that it it can't have just been about diversity. I'm sure this was a cost. This had to be a cost saving. Anybody who has worked with virtual model solutions or trying to virtualize or digitize part of their process, it's generally always, you know, also an angle of cost savings as well. Yeah. I think the nuanced way to talk about this, because I've thought a lot about this, and this was a big you know, this is a big part of the backlash that Ad Age was talking about was that there were some people who I think had a tendency to focus in on the diversity part of it. And I think there's a misunderstanding about what the article meant by diversity. I think there was a lot of people who jumped to the idea that Levi's is either unable or unwilling for some reason to just book models of varying, you know, diverse skin tones, body types, all of that stuff. And that's not actually what they're saying. What they're saying is, like you said, it it kind of boils down to basically a sort of budget conversation. How can we do more with the money that we have? One way that we can do more, and by do more, what I mean is they're talking about diversifying on the PDP, being able to show more different types of people on a single product's PDP than they could before. That would have meant booking 
every model that you wanted to see for one product, which is just financially undoable. It's just undoable. I mean, even for a brand to be able to show three different size models, they're tripling the cost of what it takes to produce an image for that one product by doing it that way. But if you've got a finite amount of budget and you're using AI-generated models, you can put 100 different people on a single PDP. And so that's where we're talking about the ability to be able to show more diversity. And again, you kind of hit it on the head, Juliana, that we're talking about what really amounts to like a budget kind of decision that they made. But there's two ways that you can spin why Levi's decided to announce it. Right. The charitable way to put it, and I, I have a tendency to believe that there's a lot of truth in this too. Levi's is one of the first major brands in the U.S. to announce that this is happening. I don't know if it's the first, so I don't want to commit to that, but definitely one of the first or one of the biggest announcements. I think that Levi's genuinely felt that it was important for them to be transparent about this with their customers mm. and with their audience. I think that that's part of it. They could have just decided to do this, just decided to do it this way with the money they have and never said anything to anybody about it. So I think the conscious decision to actually make this announcement says something about the content. And I think you're right. I, I guess when I think about Levi's, I don't think about a particularly innovative brand necessarily. I think of it as you know, a very sort of institutional company within the U.S. So I mm. wonder if also the play is a little bit to position themselves as an innovator within this space as well. I mean, I could be mischaracterizing some of their, you know, brand positioning, but I think you're right. I think there's the play of diversity, of course, but yeah, there is ultimately a cost decision behind this in terms of being able to, to hire a more diverse set of models. So interestingly, Levi's came back with a, another press release around this, basically saying, our recent announcement of a partnership with La La Land did not properly represent certain aspects of the program. For that, we take responsibility. We do not see this as a this pilot as a means of to advance diversity or as a substitute for real action that must be taken to deliver our diversity, equity, and inclusion goals. And it should not have been portrayed as such. Mm. So, you know, I think that's just sort of reflected that this is not in all their approach to DNI within their organization. And they go on to talk a little bit more about the role of technology and the role of right. innovation within the organization organization as yeah. well. So this technology is going to democratize a lot of shopping experiences and it's going to have the potential. And I think this is a really interesting way to think about the future, because just like you alluded to earlier, Juliana, we had no idea when we went from film to digital, you know, it was a lot of photographers complaining about digital makes it too easy and everybody's going to be a photographer and no one's going to hire professional photographers. And you know what? It actually turned out that it got, yes, it did get easier to become a photographer. It also got easier to become a professional paid photographer who did it full time in ways that I yeah. don't think that were true before, because what nobody could have predicted is that our appetite for images is insatiable yeah. and it still is insatiable. There still is not enough people out there shooting the content that brands, retailers, Every company out there feels like they actually need to get their message across. Yeah, yeah. And it blew open different channels in terms of experiencing photography. I mean, Instagram wouldn't exist without digital photography, but even the whole industry of e-commerce likely wouldn't exist without digital photography. So, yeah. you know, I think it's unknown in terms of the pathways that this is going to open up and the channels and the new industries and the new types of experiences as well that I think are going to open up as a result of this shift my point I was working towards there is that imagine the small designer, imagine my friend T with his small brand of just a few select pieces every season 
being able to put together a PDP that looks as good as the biggest fashion brand in the world because this technology is available. Yeah. And so now you're going to have an opportunity for a lot of brands to start to really develop for themselves. And what that means for the big brands, and Brian Hennessy kind of alluded to this on his episode of this podcast when he talked about like, watch out for the small brands that are creating a really interesting PDP experiences because they can do that. They can pivot quickly and make those cool experiences that the big brands can't. Yeah. The big brands are gonna have to find ways to really protect that brand name and be able to start to act like more agile, smaller brands because the smaller brands are gonna suddenly have top tier level product photography on their PDP, amazing yeah. looking campaigns that look like they were shot by the world's best advertising photographer. And they're gonna be able to do it cheap, you know, cheap yeah. and fast probably. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I mean, we focus a lot on the PDP too here in this conversation, but even the experiences outside of that where people are doing social shopping and also in some of these gaming experiences as well, where this content isn't being created for someone to buy the physical product, they're actually buying this item to use in some sort of, you know, gaming metaverse experience. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, my kids have spent, and the truth is that honestly, I say my kids, I also have spent a lot of money in Fortnite. It turns <laughs> out it's really cool to be able to have different characters and outfits. And I've spent more money than I'm willing to admit on yeah. outfits for a video game character, which is an insane thing. Yeah. Juliana, there was one other thing that I don't think we need to touch on very deeply because we're, we're already at a pretty long episode here, but we'll put the link in the show notes. I just thought it was kind of an interesting note that the government of the United Kingdom actually has like a 70 plus page document talking all about the research that they've been doing into AI and what it means at a much broader level, not just on e-commerce or creative production, but broadly overall. And so again, you know, thinking about like which of these future technologies are super shrouded in hype and which of them uh, represent real value and real impact to the way that we live and the way that we shop. And, you know, the UK government coming out and saying, like, we have sort of a framework on how we're going to both foster innovation, but also regulate things because, you know, like we mentioned earlier, the AI can make things pretty scary. Some of the things the AI can do, especially outside of just like image creation, can do some pretty scary things that we we need to tread carefully in some ways. So it's interesting to think that there are governments out there who are, you know, getting ahead of this. Yeah, and actually taking it seriously, I think one of the criticisms of the early internet is that, you know, there was just this sort of hope and optimism and they let the internet run and got to some pretty unregulated, dangerous places. And so I think it's recognizing that AI also has that similar capability and that we want to make sure that we get ahead of it or we, the UK wants to get ahead of it in terms of what data information is fed into it, how that's being used. And so I think that's important too as content creators to understand, you know, how our information and our assets are, are being used and fed into these. So I, I think, you know, watch this space. I think it's going to probably develop. I think we're probably going to see more about this in, in the U.S. as well. Juliana, thanks so much for coming on. And it feels like our industry now is going to have more breaking news than we usually have. So maybe there'll be an opportunity for us to do this again. I really enjoyed this kind yeah, of format. Yeah, yeah. I love the the breaking news, creative ops, breaking yeah. news. We got to put the... Cool. Great to talk to you, Daniel. That's it for this episode of the e-commerce content creation podcast. Many thanks to our guest, Juliana Vale, and thanks to you for listening. The show is produced by Creative Force, edited by Calvin Lands. Special thanks to Sean O'Meara. Hello, Ian. I'm your host, Daniel Jester. 
Until next time, my friends. Thank you.